Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. Or check out SubChina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming today, as always, from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy Goldcorn was unfortunately too slammed with finishing up the week's work before the Chinese New Year holiday, so he's unable to join. Um, like many people who do a lot of writing, I, I have tried my hand at fiction, but I, I always find that, that the plots or the authentic dialogue or the characters or the, you know, the conceits that I dream up are never as compelling on the page as they are inside my head. Uh, our guest today, though, is somebody who is actually giving me a little more courage because she is living proof that the skills that you hone as a journalist really do better equip you for fiction writing, or at least they certainly seem to in her case. Toping Chan is a journalist with the Wall Street Journal, although I should say that she is speaking today in her capacity just as a fiction writer. She's now in Philadelphia covering the work beat for the journal, but until recently and for many years, she was in China with the journal. Her collection, newly published, is called Land of Big Numbers. It's got 10 wonderful short stories, all either set in China or, you know, involving characters from China and set elsewhere. But they are very affecting, inventive, beautifully written, and, and often very funny and, you know, uniformly memorable stories. So, Topeng, welcome to Seneca. Congratulations on the success of Land of Big Numbers and on the deservedly awesome reviews you've been getting. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and for that amazingly kind introduction. <laughs> okay, Let, let's start off. I think we have to with a little bit of your personal story. You know, I mean, we're both Chinese Americans. I assume um, you were also born in the States. Yeah, so our Laojia is in Hainan, but like many Americans of Chinese descent, my folks, we've got roots in Taishan as well as in Beijing, and we've got some Southern blood and Northern blood as well. Oh, great. And and you grew up where in the States? I grew up in Oakland, California. Oh, yeah, right. Bay Area. I, I'm, I'm, I went to Cal, so, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Brother okay. Um, and wait, you know, Tucson, Arizona gets a name check in your book. I mean, uh, one one of the the, the excellent uh, stories in there, uh, the, the couple actually live in Tucson. Uh, do you have some connection to Tucson? No, but I once traveled through there, and it just seemed like this really fantastical land. The colors are so vivid, and it all just seems sort of like a stage set. Yeah, the sky somehow more dramatic. Yeah, I, I grew up there. Oh, I don't you know did. if you know that. I, I spent <laughs> yeah from seventy eight seventy eight to eighty four there, and then again from uh, I guess eighty nine 
after Tiananmen, uh, 89 to 96 there until I moved to China uh, when I was in graduate school. I mean, you, you, I, I'm surprised you don't have a real personal connection because you, you got details of like, you know, summer monsoons and, you know, Palo Verdes and Saguaros all, all perfectly. So yeah, yeah, it was great to. Thank so, you. Uh, so, um, and then when did you go to China? I first went to China in 2006 as an undergrad. Okay. Yeah. So I was at Capital Normal and later at Beijing Normal and went back to the country in 2010 on a Fulbright Fellowship, then was in Harbin and Chengdu and ultimately made my way back first to Hong Kong in 2012 to be a correspondent there for the Wall Street Journal. And in 2014, moved back to the mainland and was in Beijing. Oh, cool. So I guess I met you in that 2014 period when you had moved back and started working for the journal. That's right. Uh, yeah. And and then you didn't get back to the States until just last year or, or 2019? End of 2018 and we moved back. End of 2018. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It was a really remarkable time to have been in China. So let's zoom in right now on your years there. You know, so did you have a particular beat when you were writing for the journal there or were you sort of general news? General news. Yeah. I mean, with a little bit more focus on kind of educational system, environment, um, human rights, but or, yeah, you know, you know, it's a small team. We all covered everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was a great crew of people at the Journal during your time there. Uh, just really amazing people. Um, I guess that was like the, the uh, Jillian and Josh were both there at the time. And That's right, that yeah. Were, and yeah. Laurie and, yeah, many, many Laurie, past yeah. guests of yours on this show. Um, yeah. yeah, just amazing people to learn from and work beside. Yeah, you were, you were definitely overdue. But you're the first one to come on to be, you know, talking about a successful uh, collection of short stories. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a huge believer, I mean, I've talked about it all the time on the show, in, in developing a sense of empathy, and, and particularly of informed empathy, of cognitive empathy, especially, you know, when it comes to getting it right with China and the Chinese people who, you know, seem, I think, to many Americans and to other Westerners to just be so utterly different and have, you know, such a completely, you know, different lived experience and a different history. It's just so unfamiliar to Americans. So, I, I feel like what you've done here, um, your ability to imagine yourself not just into one Chinese perspective, but but into the minds of of really multiple uh, characters from such a diversity of backgrounds of you know different genders, of different ages, of different social strata, uh, different levels of you know sophistication or exposure to the West. I think that's got to be you know part of the reason why you produced such good journalism. I mean. Can you talk a little bit about what the interplay is between your fiction and your journalism and whether you think, as I suspect, the one improves the other and probably, you know, the other direction as well, uh, as uh, as I, I hope is true? <laughs> yeah, so the interplay between fiction and journalism, is such a good question. I think so much of the discipline of journalism, listening to people and finding the meaningful and looking for those telling gestures um, and voices that are so compelling and paying attention is is those are exactly the skills of fiction in so many ways and for me living in China during those years I mean it felt like such a privilege to be a reporter there and to have the chance to get to immerse myself in so many different kinds of worlds within the country and speak to so many different kinds of people and and really, even before living in China as a correspondent with the journal, I mean, from the time that I first arrived as a student in 2006, I mean, it's just impossible to not be struck constantly and compelled by, you know, what the country has been going through. And so for me, 
journalism was a way, of course, that felt like, you know, a vehicle to tell so many stories about what was happening in China, um, but also just out of necessity. It was um, one where obviously the world is so winnowed down and it's interpreted through the lens of what is meaningful to a global audience and all of that. Of course, you know, the, the sorts of stories that we often would find ourselves writing in reaction to the news, dictated by high-level state policy and government actors. Um, all of it compelling, but also a lot of it feeling almost incidental to what is so, um, you know, what what felt like so much the heart of my experience in China, which was much more like the personal and the idiosyncratic and um, individual stories around me. Oh, wow. Um, the... I, I got to think that you must have been nurturing this idea of writing short stories from a pretty early time in your journalism career. Uh, is that is that a correct suspicion, or was <laughs> it something that happened only toward the end? Yeah. So no, it really only happened towards the end. I I oh. had always like I'm I'm someone who always had a million stories that I wanted to write as a journalist, and some of them. I mean, I took any opportunity I could to try and smuggle um, some fun and humor and some of that you know, kind of more ground level color into our stories. I'm thinking I did one story about um, a pair of villages that were having sort of a tug of war over a bus stop, like digging it up covertly in the night and moving it. Back and <laughs> I forth remember that one, their yeah. entrance. Mm-hmm. You know, or stories about, um, yeah, like um, the fad for students wearing wedding dresses on campuses, like during graduation, just all sorts of colorful pieces like that. But um, so I was for a long time, I mean, I would, I would be just picking up details like that and trying to put it into news stories however I could. And really the short stories didn't occur to me until quite late when I was um, actually working on a novel, um, one that I had started to write when I was living in Chengdu in 2011. Oh, wow. And yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd finished it when I was living in Chengdu and um, I don't think it was very good, but um, I had... I'd still be happy to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I picked it up again like I'd set it aside for some time because after I I wrote that book I joined the journal and I I didn't have a background um, in newspapers and so it was you know it's a lot to learn and so I really just gave myself entirely over to the job Um, and it wasn't until you know years later when I felt sort of more comfortable in the role that I started to go back to fiction writing and, and working with this novel again and was really wrestling with it felt like I just was having trouble getting back into it. It was also like historical fiction. Um, and at some point it really just occurred to me that I could be writing about what I was seeing in contemporary China instead of, you know, grasping for details about 1930s Shanghai. Um, and yeah, and and for me, um, you know, I remember very vividly there was one, one night when I was biking home from um, the bureau in Beijing and thinking about the novel and sort of thinking about different phrases and um, this one phrase Shanghai murmur popped in my head and I I didn't know at all what it was what it meant or you know yeah just but it occurred to me almost like maybe maybe you're like this way too Kaiser like sometimes I you know when I was in high school I think a lot about band names and so sometimes I find myself thinking about story titles (laughs) sort of in a similar way Um, and so yeah I I thought I would try and write a short story around it and I ended up writing 10 um, which ultimately became this collection, and so that was the first yeah, one that you. you that was you that was that was the first one. Yeah. So it would seem that just as your ability as a fiction writer made its way into your journalism, 
your experience as a journalist seems to have made its way now into your fiction. There are all sorts of, I mean, your stories, all 10 of them are, are shot through with references to real life things that, you know, made the news in China. Some of them well before you were there as a journalist, but, you know, during your time in China, for sure. There's, you got your protests over land appropriation. You got young people being detained and dying mysteriously in, 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 in jail. You got roundups of petitioners. You got your stock market crashes. You got your, your nail houses. You got farmers who build robots or, or airplanes. Mm-hmm. All these things, I think, would be really familiar um, maybe to people like us who've lived in China and were paying attention to the news really across the whole first couple of decades of this century. Uh, but I, I can imagine um, somebody criticizing the collection and saying, and some jaded reporter type saying, you know, that all of it feels shoehorned in. For the record, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that it, it, it all works. Um, but can you, can you talk about your decision to bring all of, of these elements in? Was that Sure, entire, yeah. Know, I mean, yeah. it's funny. I don't, obviously there, there are stories in the book that are um, inspired by headlines, which I found myself at times almost using like writing prompts. Like I'm thinking of one story um, about an elderly farmer who wants to build an airplane, uh, which is just like a recurring motif of a story I felt like I kept reading in local news and um, yeah. was always yeah. just so curious about and wanting to know who, who this person was or, you know, who these people were and what their stories were um, and drove me to write that, that one piece. Um, I'm pretty sure that he is exactly like the 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 real the real deal <laughs> his, everything from his tender relationship with his wife to uh-huh. his you know party party membership aspirations to, uh-huh. uh, everything that was just great I, I, that that might have been my absolute favorite oh i know it's I'm, probably not everyone's yeah. favorite but i love that one. no it's i'm so thrilled that you say i i think of it as yeah it's like kind of the more off the radar connoisseur's choice i i i there's lots of opinions on yeah, which which story is the favorite? I've I've heard really different views, but that is absolutely mine too. And I think for people who really have spent a lot of time in China, um, I've heard the same thing because I do think it captures kind of a, like a, a quietness and a tenderness that exists in life there. Also married to just like this outsize ambition, and um, but at the same time, like so funnily pragmatic too. You know, this um, elderly farmer who just wants never ridden an airplane, and he so he's just going to build one himself. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's so so China. <laughs> it's so, so quintessentially China. I mean, I gotta say, I mean, most of the men in the stories uh, are don't come in for such good treatment. I mean, you got Chinese men in relationships with foreign women, like in in, in the street where you live, and in mm-hmm. field notes from a marriage, and they're both they're both murderers or they're accessories to murder. I don't want to spoil <laughs> anything. There's I mean, there's, you got this like sadistic and possibly quite totally psychopathic stalker dude in Hotline Girl. Oh, and I then, lo- oh, oh yeah oh uh, yeah oh I felt I like I don't know I liked him. Um, oh wow, that's okay. funny. No, it's oh, that, that, I, that hadn't even occurred to me. <laughs> Oh wow! No, well, and then I there's mean, the I felt- Amer- the American guy. Even the American guy, Eric, in 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 Beautiful Country. I mean, he's like this casual adulterer. I mean, you know, he's kind of a yeah. He's, he's also kind of a jerk, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's like the only truly loving, devoted, tender guy is is the old farm. I mean, I, I, oh as- no! But what about Ju Feng's father, who is just like oh yeah yeah oh yeah. someone who who you love, um, yeah. yeah or I no. It's so funny though that you put it that way. I hadn't even agreed to me. Um, you know, and, and Ju Feng for all his flaws is someone who I have a lot of affection for too. Yeah, um, yeah. But no, you're, you're right. There are there are absolutely darker sides. To <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a minor minor. It's not even. Um, a but yeah, no, um, I, I I loved I loved. Um, yeah, it, it's funny how it, I I don't think I can remember having just read a short story collection and 
being able I could tell you every every one of them. I mean, I remember them all. That, that's pretty good. There was well, there's no you no, know that's we say like in on, on, a, on an album. There's no langue. There's like not one throwaway <laughs> track in there. It's, it's awesome. Um, oh, you know, thank which you, yeah. which makes it hard because I, I I do want you to uh, to do a little reading, and it's going to be hard for you to pick one. I'm sure uh, to read, but we'll we'll get to that in a bit. Um, I, I got to ask you though. Um, one of the things that I found really compelling about the collection and about a couple of the stories in particular was that I, I knew or at least I really strongly suspected that, you know, I was reading allegory or, or parable, right? Mm. Uh, but it was never at all on the nose. And I hate when it's on the nose. Um, the, the fact that I am still not remotely confident that I've, I've solved the puzzles at the heart of, you know, I guess the two most f- more fanciful stories, the you know, New Fruit and Gubeko Spirit, um, any chance you could give me a hint? I mean, I, don't, I mean, obviously the the new fruit, which you know produces these these fascinating behavioral changes in people. Uh, was there something in particular you had in mind with that? That's, uh, well, I'm first of all so thrilled to hear that you didn't feel like they were too on the nose, um, or just that they well, were I'm, maybe I'm just stupid. <laughs> no, um, I, I don't. I don't think at all that they were intended to be didactic or, or to. And that was something you know in the writing of a lot of these stories was. I mean, unlike journalism, the process of fiction writing is so much like getting to write, and not strictly having you know a script in mind or um, a, a destination and and just writing towards something and knowing you that something's there, but not always having set it out in a prescriptive way at the get go. And so, um, yeah, with New Fruit, it was really just. I mean, I started writing it because I loved um, the neighborhood around me so much, and I wanted to almost write a story as kind of a tribute to it. Um, just these characters of these um, retirees around me, um, in and out of love, with all of their, um, you know, their gossip and views on other people's lives, and and in particular with the story and, and the neighborhood where I lived, um, it was it was inspired very much by the fruit um, that I would buy during the summer and everyone else, but of course the nectarines at the height of the season, which are just incredibly delicious um, and very much as they are invoked in the story, um, though without the supernatural qualities. And I just love them so much and found them so hypnotically good that it really was as I was writing the story, suddenly this, this fruit was taking on all these different properties and and not to give any spoilers, but its effects um, shift too, right? They start out evoking all sorts of um, emotions for people, very positive, um, and it becomes almost this addicting thing in the neighborhood. And then the next season is different. The um, perhaps it was you know the acid rain, who knows? Um, but if for whatever reason, the quality of the fruit is different, and it starts making people remember all these things that they want to forget, and it disrupts lives, it disrupts marriages, and I think it was just for me, it was on the one level a story, very much just again trying to evoke a neighborhood and a side of Beijing that I loved, and on the other, almost without me meaning to, I mean, it did become this story about amnesia and forgetting and recovery of memory and I think I mean that's something that seeped into the story as so many of these sorts of themes did end up becoming woven into these stories not in any really conscious way but just because inevitably if you're thinking about modern China and trying to capture it that's that's just it's always there and right the past wrestling with the past burying the past disinterring the past right I I had a theory I mean I I I would love to hear your theory (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I mean, I felt like maybe you were. The, my my instinct was she's talking about social media. She's talking about how you know the thrill of the in, early advent of it, the, the sort of liberating quality, how everyone felt so great, and then you know just all the dark stuff that that started coming out, all the, the problems of it, and how it was you know you know hiving us off into these little tribes and, you know, saying these really nasty things about us, uh, about one another. And then, you know, it getting banned ultimately or getting, you know, cracked down on really. Oh, hard. wow. I'm smiling. So, I, just, I love that interpretation. It hadn't occurred to me. Um, oh, I'm not, I mean, I'm glad it has. I would love to hear what readers have to say. And, and even more mysterious to me was Gubeko's spirit. I mean, which I thought was just a great, yeah. another great story, but, um, Oh, well, about you. yeah, about the, that train that never comes, and people just sort of stuck in this in this station. You know, it it was it, it remind. Oh, there, of course, a lot of the stories reminded me of of, and, and I'll, I'll definitely want to ask you about you know some of the inspirations for some of these or some of the other writers that we were reading. Um, like one of them in particular, I think I'll, probably not the first person to say this, but um, the street where you live, I think mm-hmm. people will will immediately draw some comparison to George Saunders' short story collection and the. Eponymous short story, you know, that gives the collection it's titled "Civil War Land in Bad Decline." Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read that? Had you read that? Yes, I have. And George, oh, okay, George okay. Saunders is an author I love. Um, oh yeah. yeah, me too, me too. Although I didn't ever finish Lincoln in the Bardo. I mean, oh, was, I re- yeah, I, I've yeah, I've heard differing views. I, I love it, was, but I know. Yeah, it was just it was just kind of yeah. I just, I somehow didn't finish it, but it, it I, I love. It might have ended up being too on the nose too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do. I mean, I actually love his his nonfiction. I think he's just a, an immensely talented writer. Um, so I mean, while we're here, who are some of the the the, the writers you love? Yeah. And, well, I I love um, in terms of short story writers. I mean, one of my favorites is Melia Malloy. Um, I love her work. I mean, it's nothing. It's not at all set in um, a place like China. They're set in like. U.S. and often in sort of more remote parts of the U.S., um, but her writing is just so crystalline mm, and mm. beautiful. Um, wow, and I've, she's, I've, not, I've not read her. I've got to, yeah. I've gotta yeah, I mean, she's just the master of, like, two paragraphs in, and you know everything you just, she's evoked this entire world um, in a few strokes. Oh. Um, I love her. Um, Kazuo Shuguru is just a favorite writer, too. Um mm-hmm. she, Yeah, um, George, George Sanders, who we mentioned, um, Another writer who I really love, especially since we're talking about short stories, and um, was reading um, in the run-up to writing this collection, Carmen Maria Machado, who, um, I mean, I love her nonfiction, I love her fiction, her short stories are incredible. Um, Yeah, yeah, so definitely, you know, I think some influences that are more surrealist or magical realism, but... um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but others that, like like Maylee Malloy um, or Kazuo Sugar are, are, are more straight sort of realist writers. Well, I'm really glad you gave us such a, a sort of a, 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 a nice mix of of surrealist or, or magical realism or whatever you want to call it and hyper-realistic stuff. I mean, stuff that was just so, you know, authentic and, you know, in which there was nothing that, that didn't ring as completely true. And I thought that was a, that was a nice mix because I, I, I wouldn't be able to sit through, you know, a whole collection of just magical realist stuff sure <laughs> but that's just me that's just me yeah yeah um, yeah well and i'm also just like since uh, before we move away from gubeka spirit since you since you brought up that interpretation of new fruit making about social media i as you were speaking i was thinking it wasn't something that occurred to me at all but it's something that you could apply almost to gubeka spirit in as much as i think that story yeah, you know again yeah, about these yeah. commuters who get stuck in place um and end up you know adapting in many ways i think almost as 
in as much as it is partly a story, I mean, it's a story about a lot of different things. And it's funny now, um, a number of readers have pointed out that there's a lot of parallels that you could invoke with regard to the pandemic and so and with so many people, you know, being that's that, that's what I thought. That's what I thought, and I was going to ask you when you wrote that one. What was oh, it during? Yeah, no, absolutely not. It predated the pandemic. For okay, sure. oh, that, that was weird. I because mean, yeah. I, 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 it, it, it felt like I, mean, I was sure that that had to be it because, you know, in lockdown, unable to move, unable to move right. forward, this is sort of frustration. <laughs> and people who were so used to mobility and productivity and just like the breakneck pace suddenly having to wrestle with you know, downtime, lots of it. Right. But ultimately also, too, the, this, like, way that they end up crafting this narrative for themselves, like, aided by state media, of how how they're almost heroes and how important they are, despite the exactly. fact that they're literally living these, like, you know, very stagnant lives okay. underground, and, which made me think of your social media comment, just because social media obviously has that same ability to, you know, make it feel like we're endowing ourselves with all kinds of... Um, yeah, just superpowers. significance and meaning and superpowers. Yeah, precisely. Well, no, so, but the, the one that is obviously about social media, though, um, and I think that, that that does touch on that theme about maybe, you know, convincing ourselves that we're endowed with superpowers and then, you know, the, the, the inherent real world dangers of so believing was Lulu, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really, I that one, I mean, obviously, that was a great one to put first because I think it really set the tone so well. Um, you made the decision to make Lulu and the narrator twins, which I think there was a, a really interesting idea there. And what I took away from that, and maybe I'm completely off, was this idea that there's actually very little that separates somebody who decides to be a dissident, to be a critic, and somebody who's kind of resigned to complacency. Or not complacency, but just sort of, you know, to, who acquiesces. Yeah, you know, I think... How could they be yeah. any closer they're, they're, you know, if they were not... Exactly. Exactly. And... And I do think in in some ways, right, like part of what that story does highlight and there's there's a lot of other pieces to it. But one thing is just, you know, when you start to take when you start to go down that path, I mean, it's not necessarily this dramatic fissure or a moment, you know, when when you throw everything to the winds. But in her case, it was just you see this evolution of a young woman going exactly. down that path. And it's, it's yeah, it's the accumulation of, of little decisions. Uh, but I mean, it's it's that that that's I mean I love how you left it that ambiguous and how you how it is that slow accretion thing. I think one reader might come to this and see Lulu as just sort of heroic and, and her her brother, you know, the narrator. So these are yeah. twins born, and you know, at, at the, during their years in college. So he is sort of you know this guy who just plays video games eventually competitively, but you know he just works in a grocery store. He doesn't have you know a lot of ambition outside of sort of the soma kind of the drugged. Uh, complacent mm-hmm. uh, and the stupor of video games and then you know her, her his sister his twin sister becomes this sort of online hero uh, but so so some people might see that you know the hero and, and the kind of the, mm-hmm. the coward uh, another reader though might see Lulu also is playing a kind of an online exactly. game yeah an online yeah. game right? I mean it's one with higher stakes but it's also right. in its own way kind of detached from reality um, yeah. I mean, and then any number of other interpretations in, in between. But I, I love that that you you gave that sort of absence, I mean, that, that ambiguity and that absence of moralizing. I gotta think that was intentional. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, and um, no, I mean, you picked up so much in that reading, and I'm so grateful. To you. Yeah. It, and it's, I mean, maybe maybe this also is an instinct from journalism, but just feeling like, you know, not wanting to draw these moral bright lines in fiction. Exactly. And feeling very much that you can empathize with everyone in that story. I mean, Lulu, 
with her sense of what she wants to do in this world and her importance within it. Um, a I love her that you husband. Really can admire. Or her, and her, her husband. Boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, her husband breaks my heart. Yeah. That. that oh no, I love I love that guy. Heart. I mean, I know that guy. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I know that guy. He was that guy's awesome. Mm. I mean, that guy's sort of you know my um, kind of a masculine ideal in a lot of ways. <laughs> really, really. Huh? Just, How so? I just feel like you know he's he's. He he had so much obvious respect for her, yeah. so much admiration for her integrity, but at the yeah. same time was so you know kind to her parents and to mm-hmm. his yeah. brother-in-law. Um, but you know had had spine and yeah. dignity. I mean, real yeah. real dignity. I, I just I, I liked him a lot. But yeah. I think I think that story just kind of gets at this this choice that really confronts every educated person in China. You know, I mean, when they, they have to weigh the exorbitant cost of dissent, and and mm-hmm. you know, uh, it. I think it's easy to understand from that story why so many people would simply choose not to go down that path, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think really wanting the reader to be able to empathize with that, right? Because from a distance, I think it really it can be hard to to try and imagine what these sorts of choices look like. Um, and, you know, we see it both from her brother's perspective, but also like the parents too, right? Who see this is this is their daughter who's brilliant and has been in so many ways afforded the chances they could not have. And in their eyes, you know, is, is throwing it away on a symbolic cause. Wow. We could do an exegesis on every single one of these stories because I really want, but I think what I'd love for you to do is give our listeners a taste of, of your prose. Um, and yeah. if you could just pick uh, something, something maybe hope, hopefully you haven't read in other, <laughs> on other platforms before. So Yeah, um, I'm going to read from the short story that Kaiser and I were just discussing, which um, is called Lulu. It appeared um, in 2019 in The New Yorker, and it starts like this. The hour of our birth had been carefully forecast, a winter's day cesarean, time to coincide with Dr. Fung's lunch break. The doctor pulled me up first, indignant and squalling, like a hotel guest roused and tossed before checkout. Lulu came next and was so perfectly quiet that at first they thought she wasn't breathing at all. Then they thwacked her on the back and her cries joined mine, and they laid us side by side, boy and girl, two underwater creatures suddenly forced to fill our lungs with cold, dry air. Dr. Fung had operated on our mother as a favor to our uncle, his old classmate. Otherwise, we would have been born in the hospital down the street where a woman had bled to death after a botched caesarean the previous year. The family had been in the waiting room for hours, and at last the father-to-be pounded on the doors of the operating room. When no one responded, the family pushed them open to find the lifeless woman on the table, blood pooling on the ground. She was alone. The staff had stripped the medical certificates that bore their names from the wall and fled as soon as the surgery went wrong. From the start, we were lucky, not least because we had each other. As twins, we'd been spared the reach of the government's family planning policies. For the first few weeks of our life, our skulls had matching indentations from where they'd been pressed against each other in the womb, like two interlocking puzzle pieces. Later in life, when we were apart, I used to touch my hand to the back of my skull when I thought of her, as of seeking a phantom limb. We weren't in any way an extraordinary family. My mother worked as a warehouse clerk, my father as a government sanitation planner. When he was 47, his division chief, a fanciful man who once dreamed of being an artist, decided to build a public toilet in the shape of a European clock tower. He'd been to Europe and had impressed by the cleanliness of the toilets and the loveliness of the architecture and wanted to combine the two. 
Like most artists, the division chief had a fragile ego, and shortly after my father balked at the project's expense, he was fired. It was the sole act of independence he'd committed in his life, and it cost him his career. From the time Lulu was ten, my parents worshipped at her altar. Her precocity was evident early on. It was like a flag being waved energetically from a mountaintop. Neither of our parents had much education, and it stunned them to find themselves in possession of such a daughter. When we were small, we played devotedly together. Lulu was a great inventor of games, which often incorporated whatever she'd read most recently. One day we were stink bugs looking for the right leaf on which to lay our eggs. Another we were herdsmen fleeing Mongolian invaders. She was braver than me. Once she even snuck into the apartment of the elderly woman who lived opposite us and had left her door ajar while retrieving the mails downstairs. It's full of newspapers stacked as high as your head, Lulu said excitedly, eyes glowing as she dashed back to our apartment. There's a giant orange cross stitch on the couch with a peony and six fishes. As a child, she was always reading. Even at meals, she would sit and scan the back of the juice box. She must have read it a million times. As Sparta team xanthan gum, and red number nine. It wasn't a conscious thing. She just seemed to feel uncomfortable when her eyes weren't fastened to a page. She had a mania for lists, too. By eleven, she'd memorized every bone in the human body, and she used to recite their names to me at night in an eerie voice as I held a pillow over my head. Sternum, tibia, floating rib. In high school, I rebelled against her brilliance by playing video games, lots of them, spending hours whipping a gun back and forth across dusty landscapes empty of people, except for those who wanted to kill you. Usually there were six or seven of us at my friend Xingjian's apartment, and we would take turns and cheer one another on. We were an army invincible. Or if we weren't invincible, we could hit replay at any time, which was pretty close to the same thing. Lulu, meanwhile, was a model among model students. She studied so intensely that it left her physically bowed and exhausted, like an athlete running a daily marathon, and at night she dropped off to sleep without a word. My mother fed her stewed mushrooms that looked like tiny brains when their stems fell off. They would be good for Lulu's studies, she said. She gave some to me as well, though by then it was plain that any hopes for academic glory resided with her daughter, not her son, the constructive effects of mushrooms be damned. When we sat for the college entrance exam, it surprised no one that Lulu scored high enough to earn a place at a university in the nation's capital, a bus and a train and a plane ride away. My mother wept with what she said was happiness. A scholar, she kept saying, a scholar. She and my father, she liked to remind us, hadn't studied long before going to work in the factories. We are so proud, my father told Lulu. There was an intensity in his expression that unnerved me. One of our school books had a black and white illustration of a long-ago eunuch serving a feast, staring hungrily at the food on the emperor's table, and there was something of that look in my father's face. The night Lulu left was overcast, the twilight that preceded it a peculiar mixture of orange and ochre. Earlier that day, my father had given her a gift, her very own laptop. It was thick with promise, like a fat slice of cake, sheathed in blue plastic. It wasn't like the old computer that we all shared, which stuttered and stalled, its keys sticky with grease and crumbs and bits of hair. This one had keys that yielded obediently when you touched them. I'd stared at it enviously, too filled with longing for words. Don't worry, you'll get one too when you leave, the exact same, my father said. At the airport, our parents assumed expressions appropriate for refugees being abandoned at a border. Lulu, be good, my father said. I stood there awkwardly, a little resentfully. Lulu turned and flashed a peace sign as she went through security, 
and we watched her pink hoodie and striped zebra baseball hat retreat into the crowd until she was gone. That's great. I think this this gives just such a good example. I mean, there's already so much in there. I just jotted a couple of things down. Two interlocking puzzle pieces. That already, I mean, that's that's so fantastic, just that, that complementary thing that the two of them, these are not shaped the same, like puzzle pieces aren't, mm-hmm. right? You have one that is concave and one that's convex. And that, that already sort of hints at, at these, the, 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 the really pronounced difference between their two personalities, but the complementarity of it. The European mm-hmm. clock tower toilet thing, again, ripped from the front pages. I mean, ripped from, you know, from the architectural, like, hilarity of, of China, right, with all of... And, oh, and Chinese public toilets in particular. And, Chinese, and then, right, and then just the, the stark contrast of having that outward appearance of whatever, you know, uh, foreignness, modernity, and then it's a f- toilet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the the transgressive nature that Lulu has just from childhood, you know, breaking in or sneaking into the neighbor's apartment and then, you know, finding this this, you know, the pack rat woman with all the the newspapers stacked up to the you know, yeah. that that's that was yeah. And then the, this whole theme that comes back again. I mean, there's a couple of them, you know, obviously the, you know, her ability to recite all the bones in the body that was that comes back in rather tragically later on. But also this a theme of the ability to hit reset or to hit replay mm-hmm. that you know he can in his games and Lulu can't in, mm-hmm. in what she's playing at and then one more thing that I thought was just hysterically funny which it was great because you didn't explain it and you didn't need to which is you flicked at that Chinese medicine theory that, that the resemblance of, <laughs> of some food to an organ is good for that corresponding organ and, and I, I when I when I read that I was expecting like this explication, you know, saying, "Oh, you know, because of the theory," and, and I'm, that you didn't do that was <laughs> was a delight to me. I was so glad that you didn't. But see, I think that that just just that little passage um, for listeners, this gives you uh, some idea of the riches within here. Uh, it was so fun to just you know move through this collection slowly and to kind of delight in in um, the thought that went into it. So uh, it was just great. Another Thank theme so that I want to talk about, um, it, and this this surely must be drawn from your own life, um, from your own experiences in China, from your own maybe relationships, um, the cultural disconnect between China and the U.S., right? I mean, yeah. it's something that I'm constantly experiencing I mean, in, in my marriage, in my life, uh, watching the world around me. It's, it's in, obviously, field notes, um, in beautiful country, uh, the street where you live, where you have... You know, American characters and Chinese characters uh, in juxtaposition. Uh, you do this, I think, too well for it not to have been drawn from personal experience. Can you talk about that? It's so funny because, yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about that. And I don't, you know, it wasn't something I had thought so consciously about until people started asking me. And I realized, I mean, I, I have a lot of, obviously, you know, being um, Chinese-American and then living in China um, and coming back to the States and all those frictions that that experience entails in both locations. But in so many ways, the stories that you mentioned, um, beautiful country and um, on the street where you live, those moments of disconnect felt to me just actually like, the, the, I mean, I can, I can tell you there were, there were moments there that um, were perhaps more so than other bits in the book. Like they were things that I'd seen in my own life. Um, But I think they were more 
really just universal disconnects between humans, um, between huh. like men and women in a relationship, in love and and not in love, and you know that that moment in which you find a lipstick in your lover's car and you're trying to talk yourself out of you know what you know it means and that feeling of of coveting someone so desperately as we see the one um, man do in um, that a story on the street where you live to the point that he moves into her apartment and all of her old cast off objects that she's donated to the Salvation Army who goes back and retrieves because they acquire this aura of specialness just having been associated with her. And it's funny too, I think of the title of that story, which arrived late, but um, you know, right, in many from, ways- From it, My Fair Lady. That's right, yeah, exactly. On the street where you live because, and that's, that song is so much about that feeling, right? Of just loving someone so fantastically that suddenly around you it just imbues the ordinary with this feeling of magic and um yeah i mean i think some of those some of the disconnects that we see in that story are very much that of being an immigrant and out of place but truthfully when writing them i mean i was really channeling more i would say experiences that just right. happened that to one be, didn't yeah, feel very, like very yeah that one for sure that one that he didn't have to be chinese for that story absolutely yeah right. no, that that one didn't didn't uh, i i would maybe take that one out of that list that i gave i mean it just because it, it, i was just thinking about you know how in a few of these stories there were chinese and american characters yeah. interacting but he he was an odd duck anyway he was I mean, a very odd duck well, yeah. henry henry he would be sort of like Henry Higgins, if Eliza Doolittle had fled, and he didn't get a chance to transform his Pygmalion, right? right. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But no, that was that, that was a funny, actually a really deeply funny, but also really disturbing piece. Um, humor comes in a lot, actually. I think uh, maybe it doesn't come across right away in 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 what we've been talking about, but there, it's shot through. There's a lot of just very very humorous observations, and I, I want listeners to understand. That. That's that's the case. Um, I maybe I flatter myself to think that people like us, you know, people who kind of have grown up biculturally and have lived biculturally, that we maybe have uh, uh, we're really attuned and and able to to recognize instances of cultural disconnect more than other people can. I mean, for whom uh, it's uh, it seems unbridgeable and and even something that you can't even you you, you can't write about with any kind of uh, knowledge or experience or, or nuance. But I, I like to think that people like us who stra- us you know who straddle these two cultures are maybe you know particularly well attuned to it. I think that's yeah. I mean, I, I think I think definitely always having one's antenna up and being really sensitive to those moments when maybe it's um, you know yourself or it's people around you, right? Feeling if if there's a feeling of um, not not quite being at home or, or and always wanting to be attuned to that um and i feel like as a reporter too that's something you're just always thinking about how comfortable people are um in a conversation or in a particular context and um yeah but i i think you know with with beautiful country like a lot of those moments of disconnect they they're they're ones that could be about class too right and in some ways about culture and um that culture and i and i mean that purely like just in in a in a more universal sense of right you know someone who's who's raised in this very different context um her lover versus her just I, yeah i mean I, I think that some of those are are, are rooted in um you could you could say 
an American versus a Chinese context, but also those are such vast worlds, right? And trying to distill it to those two is, is just hard and, and and probably a bit imprecise. And I think and I hope, you know, what Land of Big Numbers is, is trying to do for readers in, in many ways is just, you know, help help create the sense of a world that is so much more multi-layered and that you know, there not being one cohesive sense of a Chinese culture or a Chinese story, right? That there's there's many of them um, overlapping and and complex and conflicting at times, and just shot through yeah with, with humanity and and people's own individual wills and sense of themselves. Once upon a time, I I, I wrote a little uh, column about how um, you know pretty much every long-term expat who's been in China has a half-finished novel or screenplay on their hard drive. <laughs> um, but, and I, mean, I think for people like me um, and then the thousands of China-focused journalists or analysts or academics, and the other people who actually do r- kind of write for a living, um, a lot of us fantasize about publishing a novel or a short story collection one day. Do you have pointers for us? How do you, how did you, you know, have the, the, the gumption to just... I'm going to get an agent. I'm going to 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 submit a draft. How did that all? I mean, what what advice would you have for us? Yeah, because I'm chicken shit about that stuff. <laughs> so, well, for me, I think the the collections just emerge out of a sense of desperation, really, just like this feeling, this really pent up feeling of like being so struck and compelled by this world unfolding around me, and like this this desperate desire to try and capture it in any way that I could and and loving journalism of course but also feeling that I could only ever capture one fragment of it through um, new stories and so for me it was I think I think feeling that sense of urgency um, was really like what carried me through this process right um, and carried me out of that novel that I had been sort of sunk and mired in um, yeah I think and then and once they were written you know just going back over them a million times and and trying to improve them until I was stuck and couldn't figure out anything else to do. And then at that point, you know, reaching out to an agent to see um, if it would be possible to try and get someone interested in the collection. It was, it was, I mean, I will, I will say it was something that like felt really inaccessible and something that was really illuminating, especially before I started trying to think about um, submitting it possibly to publishers was like, I started to educate myself about the process or, or tried to anyway. And, immediately it was just like it felt like this incredibly discouraging thing because you start yeah. reading and you're like everybody knows each other like you look into the acknowledgments of these books and everyone's like they're all friends or taking each other's classes or each other's students and not having done an mfa or like really knowing any um not having friends who were fiction writers um it, it felt super alienating and, and inaccessible and i will say just like i think this experience left me feeling like it really was much more possible than I had anticipated. Um, so well, that's encouraging. Yeah, yeah so my possible. advice would just be, yeah, go for it. <laughs> you just have to, yeah, you just have to feel that desperation. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have yet to actually feel quite that that level um, because there's just so much in, in, in everyday life that keeps me just so distracted and busy, but uh, that's just fantastic. Um, you know, I, I got asked... When's the next? <laughs> what's what's next for you in in fiction? I mean, I always look forward to reading your writing, your your journalism. But um, are you planning anything? A new project? Resurrecting that twenty eleven book on nineteen thirty strong? Yeah, well, you're inspiring me to want to open it up and take another look. Um, I always have ideas. Um, I have one novel that I'm playing with right now, and oh, great. we'll we'll see where it goes. Um, 
Yeah. You don't want to jinx it's it. Not, never want to jinx it. Yeah, right. never never want to jinx it. And especially just, yeah, I've never never really been comfortable talking about this stuff. Um, so all this is new and novel, no pun intended. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I've just been so, so thrilled that the, the book has had the reception it has and just to, to know that people are reading it in different places, um, including Hong Kong, mainland China, that that it's meant something to them. Um, yeah, it's just, it's been really moving. Well, I'm going to send you some of my shit and see what you think. <laughs> I, I look forward to that. I'm, I'm so excited to read. All right, all right. I mean, my terribly on-the-nose parables and my... Uh, <laughs> no, I, but, yeah, I, 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 I love it. I love it. I can't oh, wait to see what Kaiser's awesome. thinking in the 90s and, and what scenes he was documenting in a fictional world. Yeah, yeah. You will. You'll. I'll send that to you soon. Congrats <laughs> once more on the book. I can't wait to read more of your fiction. Um, I think you found your true calling. <laughs> as good a journalist mm-hmm. as you are, I think you found That's your so true calling. Yeah. Let's move Thank on to recommendations. So much, oh, my, yeah. my, absolutely. My pleasure. So let's move on to recommendations. But uh, first, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And the best way to support the work that we do with Seneca and the other shows in the network is to subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily newsletter, chock full of links to the day's important China news, to the good stuff on SubChina, and much, much more. Um, a couple of housekeeping things. Let's see. On Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern going forward, Jeremy and I will be hosting a little room on Clubhouse, that app that everyone's talking about. I will probably do another one later that same evening most Fridays for our listeners who are in China who won't have gotten out of bed at such an ungodly hour, but uh, especially on a Saturday morning. But the Friday 5 p.m. room will feature a roundup of the week's important China news as well as you know, a chat with a recent Seneca guest. I hope to ping you're able to join us for one of these. That would be awesome. Uh, previews of coming shows. And, of course, questions and comments from the floor. We did a little trial run really recently, and it was, I have to say, it was a success. Although Clubhouse crashed from, you know, too much traffic or maybe from, you know, uh, meddling from certain uh, state actors who are not pleased with the way Clubhouse has, has played out. <laughs> um, anyway, it, it I'm, I have my suspicions. But anyway... Also, two shows to tell you about, uh, new ones. Our new China Stories podcast features long-form stories and op-eds from some of the best English outlets covering China. Our partners at present include Sixth Tone, Caixin Global, The Wire China, which was founded by David Barboza, former New York Times uh, correspondent and just a fabulous writer, and The World of Chinese. If you like audio but hate to hear the Chinese names and tones butchered, subscribe to China Stories. Uh, You will love it. And... Our newest network member is You Can Learn Chinese, a podcast produced by the good people who bring you Mandarin Companion, John Pasden and Jared Turner, just two of the nicest and most knowledgeable people there are when it comes to uh, Chinese language learning. It It's not a Chinese language learning podcast, per se. Um, instead, it's it's you know it doesn't teach you the language, but it's a podcast about learning, about learning Chinese uh, with all these tips and techniques, methods and mindsets. Uh, Lots of moral encouragement. Also features uh, interviews with non-native speakers who have managed to learn Chinese, uh, including Jeremy and myself. We've been on the show before it joined our network. So do check that show out. Subscribe to You Can Learn Chinese and to China Stories. Finally, one of my absolute favorite network shows, Strangers in China, is back for its second season, and it's going to be even better than the first season from what I've heard of it so far. The show's producer and host, Clay Baldo, is just a natural podcaster, an amazingly empathetic storyteller. Uh, you'll love his production, uh, his his sound design, the people and the topics that he features in this radio magazine format show. So check out season two of Strangers in China. 
Okay, on to recommendations, and sorry for going on for so long. Tuping, what do you have for us? I've got two recommendations. One is just a short story collection, which I just love so much. Um, oh, yay. The title is What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky um, by Leslie Arima. It's wonderful. And mm. the other recommendation they have more for um, this particular audience would be My Country, My People, which is a book on China that I love. From um, It's a collection of essays from the 1930s. Some yeah. of them are really anachronistic. Um, it's by Lin Yutong, um, and, and though some of them are anachronistic, others, many of them, just feel so, like, as though they could they could have been written exactly. yesterday. Um, yeah, they really Li, resonate. Lin Yutong is great. I love the guy. Um, yes. He was, he was such a, a fantastic voice back then. Yeah, he's oh, one those I are, go back those to are so often. Really, really good recommendations. Actually, I have a copy of My Country, My People. Uh, I, I'm going to dust it off and, and crack it open again. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it since grad school. It's, yeah. um, no, it's always worth revisiting. Yeah. So, uh, since since we've been talking about fiction, I want to recommend a novel um, by Christopher Biha. It's called The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. Uh, it's set in New York around the time of the you know the financial crisis, 2008-2009, and it's about baseball, it's about finance, it's about uh, journalism, it's about um, you know the quantification of the world, it's about love and ambition and and race and and uh, the internet and and much much more. I guess I I, I guess I, I'd give it like an A minus. Um, it's not perfect, but I definitely think it's worth your time. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I do recommend it with you know minor, minor reservations. Uh, Toping, thank you so much again for your time and uh, this beautiful reading. Um, I'm I'm going to be you know singing the, the praises of this book loudly, uh, and I, I really highly recommend people pick up a copy for themselves and, and enjoy it, and then uh, go back and re-listen to this podcast once you've done that. Uh, I think you'll pick up on a lot of it. Um, you'll you'll get more out of it uh, having actually read the collection. So thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. This is this has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me on. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network, including the three that I've just talked about. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.